So the internet is garbage. Okay, good. Good to know. Thanks for the update. I thought it was a flash in the pan, frankly. <laughs> yeah, just uh, we can all blame that other guy who who created the internet. You know, when was that? Like fifteen years ago? Al Gore. Twenty years ago? Yeah, Al Gore. Yeah. We can blame him when we decide that it's not worth our time. He invented the moon too, didn't he? The moon? Yeah, Al Gore. The moon and the internet. He he might have invented the moon, but you're the one who's going to write your name on it one day. That's true. This is this is a foregone conclusion. That's the point of the laser, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Just so we're clear. Mm-hmm. The laser engraver in, in James's garage, which so, some of you <laughs> have been the beneficiary of when you've received a Hopnology coaster in the past. This is true. Mm-hmm. Yep. You want a Hopnology coaster? Become a patron. Right. I classify it as an engraver in order to keep this FBI off my back. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. As far as everybody else knows, it's an engraver. It's an engraver. That's just between you and me. For people listening. And yet, whenever I make fun of you and we're recording, I feel a little burn on the back of my neck. Mm. And I'm pretty sure it's because you've got the mirrors all set up where you can hit me directly from there. Yeah, sure. We won't talk about this one I have on in orbit. <laughs> <sighs> yes, Batman. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're going to play with technology today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, duh, sign me up. Many people have heard of this chat GPT business that's going around, and it's it's super fun to mess around with. So we're going to take it to the hop yard with us. Awesome. Finally. Mm-hmm. A little background here. I was actually on a, uh, a college campus tour with my son a couple weeks back, and the computer science lead, uh, dean, whatever person was doing a kind of a mini class. Like, this is what a class will be like when you're here. And we're sitting in one of their lecture halls, and he's talking about ChatGPT. And you can tell he was kind of annoyed with the whole concept, but but he excited to be talking about how useless it is. And the way he explained it is that what it does is it takes your question, it looks at all the words in your question and the order the words are in, it then reaches out to the internet and looks for the most likely word to follow that question. And then it looks for the most likely word to follow that word. Mm -hmm. And it creates sentences based on looking at what's already out there. So ChatGPT is not, it's not AI. It's not creating intelligence. It's not reasoning or learning. It is taking, it's like a best of Google search, God forbid. But, But that is in an, in, you know, a very basic sense how it is operating is looking for the next word and the next word and then the next word. And the beauty of it is one of the best things about ChatGPT, and this is where the not so much AI but randomness comes in, is that you can then say, try to answer the question again. And it will do it again, but it will deviate instead of looking for the mo- the best answer. It'll take a suboptimal answer because it wants to give you different choices. It's an interesting algorithm, the way it works. It goes out there and grabs these things for you and feeds them back in a way to make it look like it's a person coming up with opinions and reason. When in fact, it is really just like the rest of us, trolling the internet and continuing to search until we find the answer we like. I like it. Mm-hmm. Sounds like fun. You can keep saying, no, I want a better answer until you find the one you like. I have, I have found it very helpful for things that I'm doing that I'm really bad at, like computer programming. 
mm-hmm. uh, to write computer programs, like for a microcontroller for some crazy um, low-orbit laser platform, say, uh, as an example. And I can go into this program and, and basically tell it that this is what I'm trying to do in this code. And it will write the code for me. I have yet to try it in my day job, which is to some degree coding like that. I keep meaning to because it just it just feels like such a cheat. But if it's it's no different than my Googling YouTube videos on how do I make this work. That's exactly right. And it's it, it's the same thing. I like the way the way you describe this whole thing is, is excellent because it it's a new type of interface. That's how I see it. Mm-hmm. Right? Where where now we can use let's call it quote commoner language in order to access more immediate, I said more immediately access things that are closer to what we want without all the effort of trying to dig through everything. Now it's interesting that the, and it's kind of refreshing that the folks that have built this at the, at the outset are trying to be, um, they're, tr- they're trying not to just let people use it to write porn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> they, they, there are, that's um, the primary use of the internet. Well, of course it is, and, and so so from that perspective, I guess you could say it only has access to like half of the useful internet because it's it's ignoring the porn. Mm. It, they, they there are some kind of decency filters. So my I have a friend who um, is now retired. He's a jazz musician. Um, I, pl- I played with him for years, and he's also just a complete and utter goofball. So he has been posting like crazy on Facebook that he's been messing around with. Um, with all of this chat GPT stuff. So here's his latest post yesterday. I think I broke Microsoft's new AI chat by getting it to rewrite the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, massacre using GOP members. <laughs> so you can only imagine what that looked like. <laughs> A couple of days ago, he rewrote White Christmas and had it replace Bing Crosby with Vin Diesel. <laughs> What? And it's like this Fast and the Furious version of White Christmas, which is hysterical to read. I mean, he he's a complete goof. But but he he copied and pasted in some of the responses. I'm sorry, I cannot fulfill that request because it would be inappropriate and offensive. It goes against my programming to generate content that is derogatory, disrespectful, or discriminatory in nature. I strive to maintain a respectful and professional demeanor at all times. This is this is Microsoft's one yes. that. Was that the one that went insane the other day or some crazy shit? I don't know. It might have. Yeah, this is chat GP. Yeah. I he's he's using. Ah. Uh, so it's it, people are go- just like I was saying before we started recording. People ruin everything. Of course. So people are going to ruin this. Yes. They're absolutely going to ruin this. So I went ahead and put some stuff in here because it would be fun. And, and I want to say to our listeners out there who who need to be better ambassadors for our podcasts that I had it, I asked it for the best podcasts about hops and hop production, and we and no matter how many times I redid it, we never came up. Wow! So we need some some people praising hopnology outside of the Discord, which I'm assuming this AI can't get to. Ah! But we we need a little more web traffic about you know. You know, get the word out there. Hey, now. Say. So that was a little disappointing to me. I have yeah, to geez. Way to lead with the downer. I know. So both of you out there who are listening, we need you to, you know, ah. put some generic posts out there about how great we are. Way to go, mom. All right. So I typed in, where's the question? How do I build a hop yard? Super simple, right? Mm-hmm. 
and I, I, I won't I won't read every word because this it actually kept on going. <laughs> but the opening line is building a hop yard can be a challenging but rewarding project. <laughs> they le- they left out the crying. They did leave out the crying. Right, crying and the um, and divorce, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Here are the basic steps to follow. And there are, as we know, there are only eight steps to building a hop yard. Only eight. Only eight steps. So here is and this takes up approximately one entire screen scroll wise. So okay. it's a one pager. If we had known we could publish a one pager on how to build a hop yard, all these years of podcasting, like what a waste of time. It's one page. Totally. All those all those hundreds of hours of in person education sessions. Mm-hmm. Just wouldn't have wouldn't have needed to do it. So one one page. Yeah. One, but there's even room on the page to snap a hopnology logo on there just to <laughs> You know, to make it look a little more professional. Awesome. So, no, number one is site selection. Choose a site that gets plenty of sunlight, well-draining soil, and access to water. Okay, it's not wrong, right? It's it's yeah. Yep. Wow. You know. Okay. Number two is soil preparation. Remove weeds, rocks, or debris. Consider adding compost or other organic matter to to improve fertility and drainage. Okay. Again, mm-hmm. not wrong. Mm-hmm. Not complete, but not wrong. Um, trellis installation Here, here's the first thing wrong you're, you're gonna cringe hops are a vine plant yep well, i didn't say the internet was smart no no um it also says a trellis system needs to support the weight of more mature hop plants typically at least 18 feet tall um with strong supports like four by four posts ah good luck with that you'll have yeah. a bunch of bananas sticking out of the hop yard inside of one season <laughs> Number four is planting. Hops are planted in the early spring when the soil is workable. Plant rhizomes or pre-rooted hop plants in the soil about two to three feet apart with the crown of the plant at or just below the soil surface. Two feet. Nice. Two feet's far too close together. Too close together? Far too close together. Number five is watering. Hops require regular watering, particularly in the first year. Ah. Okay. Regular water. Is, is that good enough direction? Regular watering? Regular watering. Yeah. Regular watering. Okay. I can handle regular watering. Fertilizing. Hops benefit from regular fertilization with a balanced fertilizer. Apply according to package instructions. Ah, good. It's the same way I shampoo, um, <laughs> according to package instructions. <laughs> well, with as much hair as you have, I think you need to read the instructions. Okay. That's, you know, maybe maybe that's my problem. I needed a... Um, a defoliant. I, need, I needed a <laughs> I needed a, a charter grower program for my hair. <laughs> oh boy, uh, training. And I was surprised to see training. As hot plants grow, they'll need to be trained onto the trellis system. Tie binds to the trellis with twine. Did being they, did they use binds this time or vines? Uh, they used binds. They wow. u- that's a good catch. They used binds this time. Mm. Tie the binds to the trellis with twine, being careful not to damage the delicate shoots. Tying the binds to the trellis with twine has mm-hmm. not been done commercially since, oh, the 1920s in England. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it's, it's looking at the 1920s internet for mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. answers. Mm-hmm. And then harvesting is the last step. Hops are typically harvested in late summer or early fall when the cones have reached maturity. Cut the binds with a B from the Mm -hmm. trellis and harvest the cones by hand. Oh, Lord. Then dry them before using them in brewing or other applications. And that is how you build a hop yard. 
I did not ask how you dry and process, so it's fair that it stops there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a final conclusion. Building a hop yard can take some effort, but with patience and care, you can enjoy a bountiful harvest of fresh hops year after year. I feel like there needs to be a V end and a little Disney music after that. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Uh, good night, everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, there we, you go. We have nothing more to add. I, I, I know. I know. I feel... I feel like I've wasted so much of my life when this can just be divined this way. Right. Um, wow. So n- not bad. Not well. I mean, it's bad if you want to do it right. It's not a, a horrible summary. No. And, and I think if you were starting, you know, a business like, I don't know, like the Charter Grower Program, that's the kind of thing you might want to put on the website and say, if you want the real details, log in here. Right. Regular regular watering and fertilizer according to package instructions cracks me up. Well, I think that in general, well, just like I said before, when you started this, it's like it's going out It when you – come on. Use your right – use the words. Ask it a very general question. You're going to get a very general broad answer. Mm-hmm. If we asked it, can we play with this thing? Oh, oh! What do you want me to type? <laughs> that's that's the point here. Uh, let's see here. What is the optimal leaf temperature for photosynthesis and hops? This Hold should on, be an easy one. Have to fix my spelling for photosynthesis. So it is generating an answer. Oh boy! <laughs> wow, there's there's sciency words in here. Mm. Okay, you ready? If if there if it doesn't say rubisco at least once, it's wrong. Go ahead. <laughs> just not. It's not. Uh, no, the optimal leaf temperature for photosynthesis in hops is generally between 68 Fahrenheit, 20 Celsius, and 77 Fahrenheit, 25 Celsius. It before I keep reading, is that ballpark? Uh, <clears throat> optimal. If you didn't know the answer, why'd you ask me to ask the question? Yes, that's okay. accurate so far. However, the exact optimal temperature can vary depending on a number of factors. There you go. The specific variety of hop, the stage of growth, and the environmental conditions. It depends. It, it depends. <laughs> ChatGPT just said it depends. <laughs> After all that technology and all that brain work put into this, it all comes back to it depends. Mm-hmm. I love it. Mm-hmm. Temperatures that are too high or too low can negatively impact photosynthesis and the overall health of the plant. High temperatures can cause the stomata, parentheses, pores on the leaves, Mm -hmm. to close, reducing the amount of carbon dioxide that can enter the plant and limiting photosynthesis. On the other hand, low temperatures can slow down photosynthesis and reduce the efficiency of the plant's metabolic processes. It's important to note that while temperature is an important factor in hop growth and development, other factors such as light, water, and nutrients also play a crucial role. Providing the plant with optimal growing conditions in all these areas can help to ensure healthy growth and maximum yield. You know, that last paragraph, I wonder if a lot of the responses for a variety of topics here are built in with a default disclaimer. Of course. Absolutely. It's like yes. the safe harbor statement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's the CYA. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, let's break the let's break this answer down. What was the what was the exact question you typed again? 
what is the optimal leaf temperature for photosynthesis in hops? Okay, optimal leaf temperature. The answer they gave us is air temperature. Ah, okay, that's interesting. Because the leaf temperature, when it's sunny, even if it's 75 Fahrenheit outside, the air temperature, the leaf temperature due to incident solar radiation could easily be in the hundreds. Hmm. And so that's technically not true because that could lead people to think, oh my God, how hot, how, you know, what's the temperature of my leaves? And you're going to go out, you got an infrared thermometer, one of those, you know, uh, contactless thermometers, go out and shoot a leaf that's in full sun this summer and see how warm it is. It's going to be far above 70 something degrees Fahrenheit. And you'll still be within optimal photosynthesis range. The primary limiting factor to photosynthesis in due to temperature is all about enzyme kinetics, which they talked about a little bit. They, they alluded to enzyme kinetics when they were talking about there's many factors that are involved, blah, blah, blah. But the, the expected, I would say the most technically accurate answer to that question would be what is the optimum enzyme kinetic temperature for Rubisco, which is the primary enzyme responsible in fixing carbon from photosynthesis. Just saying, but mm -hmm. it's a, I'm going to, I'm going to say a little bit of a trick question. Yep. Hey, come on, chat, GTP, TCP, whatever you're called. Get this shit right. <laughs> X, Y, Z. Yeah. A mm -hmm. little bit of a trick question, but, but, um, well, so not a, not a bad answer. So here, so the thing is, and this is why I wanted to start there and we're going to try and trick it some more is that if people did really want to use this to drive or to get answers for their hop yard as, as they're really getting into it, they're not going to get anything definitive. Mm -hmm. Or rarely you'll get something definitive when it comes to plant production. I mean, we should ask something about Donnie Mildew. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, I live here, wherever it's going to be. What is the, my, you know, can, can we ask it to create a Downey Mildew treatment plan? I don't I don't see why not. Let's try. Say, I live in, where do we want to say? Well, I mean, you, you would be able to best critique the answer if we do it where you live. Okay, yep. I live in southern Wisconsin. Or whatever. Please create a Downey Mildew treatment plan for hops. Plan for Beba boops. All right. Starts with a definition. Downy mildew is a common fungal disease that affects plants, particularly in areas with high humidity and moisture. Here's a treatment plan that you can follow to help control and prevent downy mildew in your hop plants. One, identify early symptoms. Keep an eye out for early signs, including yellow spots on the leaves and a fuzzy white growth on the undersides of the leaves. Prompt detection. Hold on. It's scrolling past the page. Prompt detection will help to prevent spread of the disease. Okay. First off, it's wrong. Okay. There is no fuzzy white anything on the underside of leaves with downy mildew. That's just flat out wrong. Hmm. Powdery mildew, yes. Ah. But downy mildew, no. There is no fuzzy white with downy mildew. It was keying off the mildew and not uh, telling right. the difference. So, so first, so there it's wrong. It's also wrong in that downy mildew is not a fungal disease. Just saying. It's an oomycetes, which is more closely related to algae. Suck it, chatty. Keep going. <laughs> I will say, though, the next T-shirt we're going to make is the last sentence in that first paragraph, because yeah. I think it's appropriate for everyone and everything, which is 
prompt detection can help you prevent the spread of the disease. This is true. Um, just just say it. Reminding me of something else that I need to pick up at the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> number two, <laughs> remove infected plant material. If you notice infected leaves or shoots, remove them from the plant immediately to prevent the spread of the disease. Dispose of the infected plant material in a way that prevents it from coming in contact with healthy plants. That is a thing you could do. But is it number two? I don't know about that. But I mean, as yeah, if you have a plant, that is something you could do. Actually physically remove those leaves. But here's the thing. How do you know if that point is it systemic? And if it is, it's not gonna it's not gonna be any good to you. You're gonna remove the leaf, big deal. You still got downy mildew. Right. It's all it's all still up and through you. Right. Number three is improve air circulation. Downy mildew thrives in, a mo- in moist, stagnant air. Increase air circulation around your plants by pruning back nearby vegetation, spacing plants apart, and installing fans or other equipment to improve airflow. Fans. Interesting. Hmm? Yeah, fa- fans, fans outside. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure yeah. how that works. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like greenhouse, uh, mm-hmm. a greenhouse response there. But the, the, the airflow thing is correct. Uh, how you're going to do that is mostly correct with the exception of the fan thing. Yeah. Uh, number four. Okay, and we've talked about this. Avoid overhead watering. Mm-hmm. Water your hot plants at the base of the plant rather than over using overhead watering methods that can encourage the growth and spread of fungal spores. Mm-hmm. That's spot on. Yep. Um, apply fungicides. Apply a fungicide specifically designed for downy mildew control on a regular basis following the instructions on the label. Copper-based fungicides are commonly used for downy mildew control in hops. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. Once once again, go buy something and follow the instructions. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, this is an interesting recommendation. Rotate fungicides. To avoid the development of resistance, rotate among different fungicides that have different active ingredients. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. that's pulling off of, yeah, a web troll for every uh, downy mildew treatment <laughs> circular that was created by any agricultural field research station <laughs> interesting and then the last one is to practice crop rotation after harvest avoid planting hops or other susceptible plants in the same location for at least three years as the fungal spores can persist in the soil so in other words if you have downy mildew don't plant hops again don't plant them there <laughs> correct um and the conclusion by following these steps, you can prevent and control downy mildew in your hot plants and ensure a healthy crop. It's important to note that prevention is key, and early detection and prompt action can help to limit the spread of the disease. So I think what I'm learning here is that having asking it very, very general questions, you're going to get very general generic answers. Mm-hmm. And, all, and you know, I've, I'm asking these these questions to that purpose. So it's like if now, we ask us something extremely specific, will we get a very specific answer? Well, I'm wondering, before we go very specific, do I re-ask the question and this time say, I live in Florida? Would it be at all different? Or, you know, where we said I live in southern Wisconsin. It never mentioned Wisconsin in the answer. Right. I wonder, I wonder what we can change in the question to see if it changes the answer at all. And maybe that wasn't the right question to, to use um, geography as well. We, or is it? Is it is it scrolling, keying off of like Wisconsin and looking for anything Wisconsin hops, downy mildew, and then pulling the information off of those articles that are written f- by Wisconsiners? It may I be. Now, now the other thing we can do here is there's a regenerate response button. 
So it will try again and alter the answer a bit. Hmm. Which I'm sort of here. I'm going to do that. And let's see if anything... I, I won't read the whole thing beginning to end, but let's see what has changed. Okay, so right off the bat... So they set the yard on fire? There's only four steps now. <laughs> Good. It's getting easier. It's... It's more conversational this time instead of a step-by-step. Danny mildew is a common fungal disease. Again, it's saying fungal. That affects hop plants, particularly in areas with high humidity and frequent rainfall. Here's a treatment plan for Danny mildew and hops for your region of southern Wisconsin. So now it's mentioning Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Prevention. So now we've got prevention, fungicides, cultural practices, and monitoring. Okay, better. So Prevention. The best way to control it is through prevention. Select disease-resistant hop varieties that did not come up last time. Yep. And ensure proper plant spacing and trellis management to improve air circulation and reduce humidity around the plants. Mm -hmm. Avoid overhead watering and irrigate at the base of the plant early in the morning to allow the leaves to dry before nighttime. Nice. So that's the first time. It it did not mention timing last time. Mm -hmm. And that prevention paragraph basically encompassed almost everything from the last article. Right. Part two is fungicides. If it's present, fungicides can be used to control the disease, copper-based, such as Bordeaux mixture, copper hydroxide, or copper oxychloride can be used, and they are effective in controlling downy mildew. It should be applied preventatively before the disease appears, hadn't heard that before, Mm -hmm. or at the first sign of infection. Follow the product label instructions for dosage and frequency. That's much more complete than what we saw last time. It is, but it's also technically incorrect. Oh, okay. Please, elaborate. <laughs> Those coppers do not prevent downy mildew. Oh, right? They're a treatment. Correct. So, and they're, they're not systemic. They're only contact. So what they're going to do is provide some defense against spores that land on the leaves. They're going to land on the leaves. They're going to hit the copper and they're going to die. That's, that's, it's a contact fungicide. So it's a, it's not a curative. Right, so it's not going to go into the plant and fix something that already happened. It's a so you preventative. Could, you could call it preventative, but it doesn't. the The way that that response is written, it says if you spray this stuff on your hot plants, they won't get downy mildew. That is not true. Well, no, this actually says if downy mildew is present, fungicides can be used to control the disease. Okay, okay, got it. That's how, that's how that paragraph okay. starts. Okay, okay, got it. But then, what did it say about what was the next thing about uh, copper? Uh, but you're right. It does say copper-based da, 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 are effective in controlling downy mildew. Oh, so I can see how th- that I can see how that sounds like preventing it. Controlling it. Does it control yeah. it? It does make it sound like you would be no. fixing the problem and and putting up a shield for the future, which right. is not true. It doesn't control downy mildew. It's effective yeah. at at it can be effective at reducing the spread. But and once again, you you know you mentioned specificity in the question. We asked for a. Tr- we asked for a downy mildew treatment plan. Mm-hmm. What were the words we used? Treatment plan. That could be interpreted as a preventative maintenance plan or mm-hmm. a a solving, you know, once you've already got it plan. So once again, we didn't specify that one way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wants us to be way too specific. Uh, the third piece is cultural practices, what they call cultural practices. Remove and destroy infected plant material, disinfect tools and equipment, dispose of all debris, uh, rotate crops, so all things that came up last time, but now just kind of crunched together. Mm-hmm. And then monitoring, and once again, they talk about white or grayish mold on the underside of the leaves, which which we know uh, is not true. 
And then they do end with, it's important to note some fungicides may have restrictions in certain areas or require a license or certification. Always read and follow the label instructions and consult with your local, local agricultural extension office or a licensed professional. So I think there's a little more detail in this one. And it's a, it, I like the way they've grouped what you need to do. But it is, for all intents and purposes, a very different response. Mm-hmm. And you can do this for days and have it keep regenerating. Yeah, and I, I, the, the key is here how you ask the question. Now, we can, you can also say here, that is incorrect. Downy mildew does not result in mold on the underside of leaves. Oh, white you fuzzy can, growth. Yes, yeah, let's, That's let's try that. That is incorrect. Downy mildew does not result in white, mold white, on the... White fuzzy. You know, it does re- result in black smudgy spores, but not white fuzzy mold. Okay, so I'm going to say that here. Let's see how it responds to that. I apologize for the error in my previous response. You are correct that downy mildew does not typically result in a white or grayish mold on the underside of leaves. Instead, it is characterized by the appearance of yellow-green spots on the upper surface of the leaves, which may later develop into brown lesions. The underside of the leaves may develop a fuzzy grayish growth that is the reproductive structures of the pathogen. And it went ahead and regenerated everything from before, but got rid of the white mold, but talks about a fuzzy grayish growth. It's closer. Okay. It's closer. And hop downy mildew does usually doesn't present that way. It usually presents as black smudgy spores. But downy mildew in other plants, like in raspberries, could present that way. Interesting. So it's, it's finding it from other plants. Mm-hmm. Be careful, people. It's a fun it's a fun toy at this point, but when when you have <laughs> when you're really curious about what to do next, um, I still have value in this world. <laughs> <laughs> this is all about me. <laughs> we'll, we'll let ChatGPT be the judge of that. <laughs> yeah. Does James Altwise have any value to to the world? I'm not typing that in. <laughs> <laughs> what what so what other que- I, I I've got a fun question to ask unless you want to go a little more sciency and see what else it gets wrong. Oh no, I, I could go. I could go for hours on this. Uh, but oh, you, yeah. go, you go. It, it, I mean, it would only be amusing to me. <laughs> what is an IPA, bro? Ooh, there you go. See, Alistair. Oh boy, it's talking about see, Alistair. <laughs> oh, he's gonna be mad. <laughs> oh, he's not gonna like that at all. <laughs> so so far, I'm getting just a a description of IPA. <laughs> IPA stands for India Pale Ale, originated in England in the 19th century. In order to survive the long journey from England to India during colonial times. But and and that is not so, that, that's not right. That's not, not right. No. Today it's evolved into a popular beer style that is characterized by its strong hop flavor. American IPAs have a higher alcohol content and more intense hop flavor and aroma than their English counterparts. Some common characteristics of IPA include a floral, citrusy, or piney aroma, a golden to amber color, and a bitter taste that is balanced by the sweetness of the malt. Um, so that doesn't, it didn't answer the IPA bro question. I'm going to have it regenerate the response. Man, I wish that's what an IPA was today. Yeah, that's really. what an IPA was 15 or 20 years ago. It gave the same answer about... Um, transport this answer talked about different types of ipas including west coast new england and doubles 
um, one of the most popular beer styles in the United States around the world. I, see, I wanted an answer to the IPA. I want to know what an IPA bro is. You're confusing it. I know. Okay. Who is an IPA bro? I typed in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is fun. The term <laughs> IPA bro is a colloquial, colloquial, colloquialism? Colloquialism. Colloquialism. Uh, and we are we are recording in the morning, by the way. This yeah. is my coffee confusion, not my evening recording <laughs> beer confusion. I just want to be clear. Well, and just your general trouble with enunciation. Th- that is true. Mm-hmm. That is true. The term IPA bro is a colloquialism used to describe someone who's stereotypical associated with the consumption and appreciation of India Pale Ales or IPAs. It typically refers to a young white male beer enthusiast who's passionate about IPAs and is often seen wearing craft beer merchandise or discussing craft beer in social media. <laughs> Here we go. The IPA bro stereotype is often associated with certain behaviors or characteristics, such as a love of hoppy bitter beers, a disdain for lighter, less flavorful beers. I I would argue with the less flavorful part. Mm -hmm. And a tendency to judge others based on their beer preferences. (laughs) I love it. While the IPA bro stereotype can be seen as a caricature, it's important to remember that not all beer enthusiasts fit this description and that enjoying a particular type of beer does not define a person's entire identity. As I Are as they, I legally change my middle name to Porter. Right. Yeah. Is it is it is it shaming IPA bros? Is that what I'm hearing? I it's mean, shaming like... <laughs> and then defending them a little bit. Um, That's excellent. Okay, I'm going to hit the regenerate response. Only one message at a time. Please allow other responses to complete. What just happened? You've upset it. I have upset it. Oh, okay. I'm having it regenerate the response. It's this time. It specifically says they are particularly fans of the more bitter style of West Coast IPAs. It's important to note that not all people who enjoy IPAs fit the stereotype, and it's not appropriate to generalize or stereotype individuals based on their beer preferences. Beer enjoyment is a personal choice and should be celebrated regardless of the style or brand of beer. Well. We'll be the judge of that. Right. Yes, we will. <laughs> of course we will. There's one thing I do well. It's judge. Oh, my goodness. I did it again, and it got worse. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, this time, they, it's, it's a stereotype that refers to someone who's overly obsessed with IPAs. Hey, okay. Getting um, better. <laughs> here we go. It's starting to get fun. This stereotype is often associated with young white male beer enthusiasts who are seen as pretentious, opinionated, and often snobbish about their beer preferences. Yep. So now now we're getting there. Now this I disagree with. An IPA bro is typically someone who's very knowledgeable about IPAs in the brewing process. Yeah, right. And often seeks out rare or unique IPAs to try. I, I didn't know give me your highest alcohol IPA was a way of seeking out rare or unique IPAs. Exactly, yep. Um, they may also be very particular about the temperature and glassware used to serve the beer and may judge other beer styles or drinkers who do not share their enthusiasm for IPAs. This is true. Um, and then they go back into the, it's important not to judge people based on their beer preferences. Mm-hmm. We're going to do this one last time. Okay. Oh, this is a lot tamer and, and not as mean as I've been enjoying the other ones to be. And a lot shorter. They're running out of ideas. Yeah. It didn't give us anything new this time, just kind of left off some of the other the other ones. I liked the um I liked that last one. The obnoxious yeah. bent in which it gave us over overly pretentious or whatever. Yeah. So that's fun. Oh yeah. <laughs> I could do this for I could do this for days. It's a ton of fun. I mean, it's mostly fun just to use it to make fun of 
people because mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's the internet. It's true. So what else can we ask it here? Let's you ask it. Let's science it again. Or? Yeah. Let's ask it a brewing science question. Let's ask it something that's been very, very popular in the discord this past week or so. What yeast strains are high in beta lyase activity? L-Y-A-S-E? Correct. What you should say, I guess you should say what brewing yeast strains. Beta lyase is an enzyme that is involved in the production of certain flavor and aroma compounds in beer, particularly in the formation of fruity and floral esters. Uh, while there are many strains that can produce esters, the activity of beta lyase can vary depending on the specific strain and fermentation conditions. Some strains that have, are known to have relatively high levels include Belgian ale yeast strains, such as Weiss 1214 or White Labs WLP 550. They produce fruity and spicy esters, including banana pear and clove flavors. Yeah, that's not, that's, that's not even right. <laughs> really? It's not even close because that's, that's not, yeah. The beta lyase is specific to cleaving thiols, and that's telling us about esters, and that's beta glucosidase. So they're oh, not, wow. it's not pulling the correct enzyme. That's interesting. Because then it talks about English ale strains, um, and then it talks about Hefweizen yeast yeah. strains. Yeah. Nope. That's talking about generating esters, and these thiols are not esters. Oh, interesting. Um, so how do I how do I push back? That is incorrect. Uh. Maybe let's re-ask the question. Okay. Let's re-ask the question. Let's say, blah, 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 what brewing yeast strains have high thiol, T-H-I-O-L, beta lyase activity? I think you need to spell thiol for me, really? We mm-hmm. just did a whole episode on thiols. Yes, yes, I do. Thiol beta lyase is an enzyme that plays a crucial role in the formation of certain compounds known as thiols, which are an important aroma for some beer styles, beer styles, such as Belgian saisons and New England IPAs. Um, while all yeast strains have some levels, some produce higher levels. Some strains that are known to have high levels include. I know I'm sp- pronouncing this wrong. Um, Saccharomyces. Yeah, the hi- wow. I know there's a camera in my basement here somewhere. <laughs> you can see over my shoulder. Saccharomyces cerevisiae, yep. yeah, strains such as White Labs WLP six forty four, um, which is known for its high thiol beta lyase activity, producing flavors of tropical food pineapple and guava. There you go, better. Okay, yep. Um, Brett strains, yep. such um, which can produce high levels of tropical fruit and citrus aromas. Yep. Um, Creek yeast strains, um, Kvik. I think yep. it's pronounced Creek. Yep. Uh, yep. Um, high levels of citrus, pineapple, and tropical fruit. And some Belgian ale yeast strains, which are known for the ability to produce fruity and spicy esters. So you go back to the esters. Yes, going back to esters now, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then it goes into the whole cover your ass with, it's important to note that it's <laughs> by many factors, fermentation <laughs> yeah. temperature, work composition, mm-hmm. yeast health, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so it, it always ends with a, you know, don't judge people based on their IPA bro activity or, <laughs> you know, remember there are 18. It, it, it depends. It always ends it, with it, it depends. depends. That's are you sure you say. weren't on the development team for this? I thought it was a flash in the pan, frankly. 